Welcome to our podcast, Are You There Universe, hosted by me, Jamie Wu, and Sunny Yu, two high-achieving Asian-American women recovering from burnout. Join us as we embark on a journey to reclaim ourselves and inner power, unpack and explore the transformative nature of social change and justice at the level of the spirit, and heal our past traumas by exploring our present. Because when you heal yourself, you heal the world. When you evolve, the world evolves with you. So a few weeks ago, and I actually think a few episodes ago, you had referenced a book called All About Love by Bell Mm -hmm. Hooks. And I took it upon myself to read that book and actually Mm. just finished it over the weekend. And it has been such a transformative Yeah, I think it's so good. It's so good. (laughs) It's so good. And I even have encouraged my partner to read it and he started this weekend and yeah what a great idea it's it's really become basically a north star in terms mm. of now how i am interpreting and embodying love as a healing form you know the word love is is hard to really define because people kind of throw it around and mm-hmm. we don't really take the time to think about how powerful love can be in so many facets of our lives in terms of the values that we hold, how we interpret our past, present, and how we can imagine the future. And I really wanted to talk about kind of the healing effects of love and really open up that conversation that I think Bell Hooks really started for me. But before we can really do that, I feel like it's it's important that we address what we're healing from, right? Mm -hmm. The types of traumas that we're enduring. One of the uh, wisdom of the Buddhist tradition is that in each day, in your immediate context, are the lessons, are like, Mm -hmm. you know, the quote unquote karmic lessons for you to move through. You don't have to look to the past. You don't have to fantasize about the future. All of it exists in the present in that way. And I think, (laughs) speaking of the present context, I'm sure many of us are preoccupied by the upcoming election. and how that restages, right, like a show and demonstration of what this government is, how it's structured, its Mm -hmm. histories. Mm -hmm. And I personally know friends who have been triggered by all this. Yeah. 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 And I think especially as someone who was so deeply embedded in politics, in government, and was so jaded and so triggered by the forms of systemic violence and um, structural inequities and oppression, you know, now being kind of hit in the face with it 24-7 by the news cycle, by social media, and then that exacerbated by Black people being murdered by Mm -hmm. police and just, and, and so many other things, millions of people dying from, you know, COVID. It's just all stacking on top of one another (laughs) and that is and it's very overwhelming yeah very very overwhelming it's like we have this emotional landscape that makes up our idea of what Mm -hmm. america is as a nation and its history Mm -hmm. and the election i think is a very 
potent time when that mm-hmm. emotional landscape becomes really strong, like right. very intense. And I want to think about the emotional landscape drawing on what you spoke about before in terms of love mm-hmm. and how, you know, when I think about even the word love, it feels trite. You know, mm-hmm. like we think about, well, what does it even mean? And when I think about that reaction that I have to the word love or the concept of love, it really draws on or it really reminds me of what this cultural theorist, Sarah Ahmed, talks about as the economy of feelings. So this is not what her theory is about, but that phrase for me, the economy of feelings was so, it really grabbed my imagination. What does it mean to think about this landscape, this emotional landscape of our nation? And really look at what kinds of feelings are valued, are legitimate, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. are in surplus, you know, Mm -hmm. and what feelings are harder to come by, Mm -hmm. harder to name, harder to take seriously. And, you know, just in terms of my own life, thinking about all the things that give me anxiety and stress when you bring up the news, Mm -hmm. and starting to wonder, what what would it mean to cultivate other feelings that might seem less serious or Mm -hmm. less practical, right? Yeah. I mean, I love what you're saying about what are the feelings that our systems engender or cultivate, right? Mm -hmm. And to your point about what what does love mean, right? What is the definition Mm -hmm. of love? And I want to address both of those points because Hooks' definition of love is very concrete, and that's something that she she discusses in the very beginning of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, an experience of genuine love is a combination of care, commitment, trust, knowledge, responsibility, and respect. And she repeats that line like a hundred times in this whole book. Well, yeah, because it's a new, mm-hmm. I mean, already it's so much more complicated than fear. Right. Or, right. or hate. And it's more deeper than what I think a lot of people may consider love as like just being caring towards someone, right? That being caring being towards attached someone, to them. Right, right. Or or some form of like romantic love, right? That mm-hmm. love is so much more complex and more powerful. Or duty, obligation. Oh yeah, for sure. And to your point, I think like what other feelings can we cultivate is what Hooks also refers to as living by a love ethic right? Mm. Creating a culture of love instead of fear and intimidation. And speaking of what our society tends to value, you Mm. know, I think the perfect example is when all of these Black Lives Matter protests were taking place, what did the media choose to focus on? Mm -hmm. It chose to focus on violent demonstrations, right? Mm -hmm. That kind of like went out of control, most likely due to police, you know, Mm -hmm. instigation, but there were hundreds and hundreds and thousands of these peaceful protests that were never given any media coverage, right? Because mm-hmm. what dominated the news, what dominates our psyches and our interests and our excitement or fear are these images of violence, right? And so, like, we've been faced with so many of these similar, familiar images of violence that it's hard to even consider what else is possible, right? Well, also, this is where I think mindfulness really intersects with Mm. bell hooks, just in terms of how, you know, emotions like fear and hate really trigger our monkey brain, which is like an evolutionary thing, right? Like, genetically speaking, we remember 
things that are going to help us survive and escape from a threat. Mm-hmm. And what mindfulness is doing, it's really trying to create more space right. so that you're not reacting or engaging with the world from the monkey mind, but from your higher mind, evolved mm-hmm. mind, which mm-hmm. can handle and really nurture more complex feelings mm-hmm. such as love. Yeah. Going back to this idea that love is a complex concept is that everyone has a different idea of what care feels like, right? Mm-hmm. Or respectability, or responsibility, respect, that this is very personal to you. And so I also think about Hook's definition of love as not just being like a fixed thing that's like mm-hmm. that could even elicit an immediate response, right? It's a mm-hmm. journey in and of itself mm-hmm. that requires deep reflection and constant revision, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We talked a little bit about this caring versus loving, right? And when you talk about deep reflection, this book and and her anecdotes and her kind of personal history that she shared really gave space for me to reflect on my own childhood, right? In which obviously my parents love me, obviously my parents care for me, Mm -hmm. but it's also manifested in different ways, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as a young child, like I I was held to very high standards, right? And Mm -hmm. I think in Chinese culture and Chinese traditions, there isn't a lot of praise handed out to your children, right? Like you are put under a lot of pressure to perform and to do well for the family because the stakes were really high, you know, Mm -hmm. where my parents grew up. It was essential for their kids to attain a certain level of education or Mm -hmm. get a certain job so that they could survive, Mm -hmm. right? And so I think that historical ancestral trauma lives on, you know, with generations after generations after generations. And as an only child, I definitely, you know, I was like spanked as a kid, right? (laughs) I was, you Mm -hmm. know, disciplined in very different ways. And understanding what love is outside of those kind of traumatic experiences or difficult, challenging experiences? Well, what those traumatic experiences demonstrate is that we really are living in an economy of feelings. Mm. Like in that experience, there is no knowledge around how to cultivate mm-hmm. love, right? Like, but you definitely know how to cultivate fear and pain, right? Right. Like that's something that you were trained to produce and work through and be influenced by. Mm-hmm. Whereas there is just not enough, like if I were to keep with the metaphor of economy, what structures do we have? What systems are in place that mm-hmm. nurture and produce these feeling states in abundance? Mm-hmm. Yeah, in a sense, I think you had mentioned this in a previous episode, but oftentimes we may even equate love with this sense of familiarity, right? And if we are familiar with violence or with oppression or with harassment or, you know, whether it's through mm-hmm. personal previous romantic relationships or even familial relationships, it leads us to expect that in other mm-hmm. aspects of our lives in 
kind of this, as you say, like this economy of, you know, feelings in this, in this larger state of being. Right. Like comfort takes the place of love because mm-hmm. love is so scarce mm-hmm. that like comfort is, it, it's exchanged. For right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, speaking of comfort, actually, I've been thinking about our upcoming election and the candidates that were running for the Democratic ticket. Oh, we're going there? (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I do think like, interestingly, I can't believe I'm saying this, Marianne Mm -hmm. Williamson, who Mm -hmm. (laughs) feels like ages ago when she was running Mm -hmm. for president. Mm -hmm. um, You know, she is known as a author and spiritual leader. Mm -hmm. And I remember at that time, basically thinking she was nuts. And I wrote her off. I was like, this woman's crazy. Like, don't even listen to her. Like, what a weirdo. And, Mm -hmm. you know, she had no government experience, didn't really know much about government writ large. But interestingly, Bell Hooks references her a few times in this book. And this book was long before the election Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was a spiritual leader before. Yeah. Yeah. And she's a very well known spiritual leader. Yeah. And, you know, if I remember correctly, she was the first person to introduce the concept of reparations for this mm. country. Like, we need to do reparations for mm-hmm. our past sins, you know, in mm-hmm. committing slavery. And she was the one who was talking about living with a love ethic, right? What it means to lead from a foundation of love. And, because, as you said, love is so scarce and so unfamiliar in these large institutions and these large systems, mm-hmm. I wrote it off as like, that's crazy. <laughs> right. Like, it's like, not practical. Yeah. Like, she's just, you know, woo-woo, yeah. like, whatever. Yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, kind of reading through this book really forced me to reexamine my own biases about love and my own biases about leadership and mm-hmm. what government can really do or what public service can really do for for communities of color or, you know, marginalized populations, et cetera. And so, well, the topic about reparations is really interesting because reparations is, it's not clear what reparations has to do with love, Mm. but when you read into it, it's kind of like you need something like reparations in order to make the soil fertile for love to take root right? Mm, Like, mm-hmm. we have these really dominant narratives around hate and fear. And how do you how are you to transform those narratives so that love can be a part of that? Mm-hmm. So the problem with these narratives around fear and hate around like white supremacy, mm-hmm. police violence, is that it, it does not leave much room, if at all, for love to be had, Mm -hmm. to even be imagined or thought. Mm -hmm. And so what reparations do is it creates that opening of Mm -hmm. like, like setting the stage, almost like clearing, clearing, not, not, not necessarily erasing, Mm -hmm. but setting the stage for growth. And the tricky part about this conversation on reparations is that it's kind of like, okay, I'm ready to learn from the past and redeem Mm -hmm. it. But there's a challenge to this because as soon as you say that, you imply that there was something wrong with the past and bad Mm -hmm. with the past. And that can be very difficult to confront and be like, well, are you saying that we're going to reject the past altogether? Like, Mm -hmm. 
And it, this gets more complicated when the past is where you locate your history and cultural origins. Mm-hmm. So, so if the origins to white American identity is based in property ownership and white supremacy, mm-hmm. then current anti-capitalist and anti-racist movements would understandably unsettle that very core of white American identity. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, well, how do you reimagine, reconstruct an origin? right? Like, how do you do Mm -hmm. that? And actually, there are so many models for doing that in Asian American cultural history. Mm. (laughs) Think about it, the cultural origins to Asian American identity, right? They're, let's say they're based in patriarchy and Mm -hmm. the model minority myth. Yeah, the model minority myth, Mm -hmm. um, or I guess, the model minority construct, because we're saying it's uh, origin. And what does it even mean to be an Asian American feminist, right? right? An artist and cultural producer that eschews a lucrative career, right? It means you are deviating from tradition. Right. And what, what that means is you and I get to redefine what tradition is. Mm, the thing, yeah. And what does that mean? You have to recover different aspects of the origin that were lost along the way. And in doing so, it's it's because you're also honoring the new spaces that you're in, right? Like mm-hmm. our our current present moment is going to be different in a different environment than my mother's moment that mm-hmm, she was living mm-hmm. in. That you have that power mm-hmm. to contest tradition, renew it, and mm-hmm. use it in a way that suits you. Mm-hmm. And also... This idea of property ownership and white supremacy as being like a root of white American identity reproduces a scarcity model that that Mm -hmm. is the only place, only thing that Mm -hmm. makes up a white American identity. Yeah. And so in a sense, by recreating and reproducing multiple origins, we're not necessarily saying we want to betray who we were or, you know, betray our past. Instead, it's more of kind of a form of evolution, right? And mm-hmm. through that lens of compassion, of giving space for other stories and narratives to flourish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We need compassion to like till the soil and water it for the seed of love to take root, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Bell Hooks really spends a lot of time talking about compassion and compassion as a form of healing shame right when we yeah, because when you reject the past mm-hmm. there's or when shame. you're reminded of your mm-hmm. the problems and the and the traumas of the past you are engulfed in shame mm-hmm. right? regret mm-hmm. etc mm-hmm. um i actually have this really beautiful quote that i would love to read mm-hmm. um, that i also wrote directly word for word in my journal because i wanted to remember it mm-hmm. um, but it's a little bit about Bell Hooks' kind of concept of compassion. And she says, compassion opens the way for individuals to feel empathy for others without judgment. Judging others increases our alienation. When we judge others, we are less able to forgive. The absence of forgiveness keeps us mired in shame. Shame breaks and weakens us, keeping us away from the wholeness healing offers. When we practice forgiveness, we let go of shame. 
and embedded in our shame is always a sense of being unworthy. Mm. It separates compassion and forgiveness reconnect us. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was so beautiful because I mean, in this conversation, we're kind of talking about that in kind of the bigger picture, right? Mm -hmm. We need more compassion in a world that is mired in shame. Mm -hmm. But I also, I read this quote as, as really referring to myself, right? Like Mm -hmm. that embedded in my own shame of my regrets or my, Mm -hmm. you know, my childhood or my past experiences is the sense of being unworthy, right? Mm-hmm. Of this unworthiness of love, of you know, seeking peace, of finding joy, and being compassionate with myself, forgiving myself allows me to reconnect from that separation of body, mind. And what you're saying also ties into what makes it so difficult to break from the past mm-hmm. because oftentimes the shame that we carry is the is the thing that connects us to our parents mm. our grandmothers our ancestors our, our identity culture, our identities mm-hmm. yeah actually you know that's wow that really struck a nerve because growing up i felt a lot of shame around not being able to speak chinese mm-hmm. right and it was it was not living up to my parents expectations in being a dutiful Chinese daughter, right? Mm. So much so that I actually ended up double majoring in Chinese in college because I wanted <laughs> to make up for that. <laughs> I ended up studying oh abroad God. in China to learn. And, yeah. and and it's not necessarily like, oh, I felt like I had to. It, it was something that like, it was definitely a mature, deep kind of realization mm-hmm. that I wanted to. I didn't feel like I had to, to please my parents. I, I really wanted to learn Chinese. But as a young child, I definitely felt ashamed of that, right? Mm-hmm. And felt unworthy. In a sense, it really made me very dependent and craving of other people's validation and praise, you know, not receiving affirmations or validations from my parents. And so I think in order to kind of feel better about myself, right, Mm -hmm. instead of practicing compassion, I instead went the other way, which is I acted out, right? I villainized Mm -hmm. my mother as the unreasonable one. It was kind of my own defense mechanism Mm -hmm. for my own insecurities, and for not really understanding or feeling that sense of worthiness or, or that compassion for myself or for my mother, right? And I think it's important to note, as, as you mentioned before, too, that embedded in all of that are my parents' own wounds, right? Mm-hmm. My, my mother's own shame, you know, of mm-hmm. not being able to kind of fulfill her destiny and mm-hmm. career as being a doctor, and I also imagine her her duty as a Chinese daughter herself, right? Right. Oh, absolutely. She was the only one in the family to move to the United States, mm-hmm. right? I'm sure even though there was so much opportunity and excitement for that, there was also shame in that. There's something, too, about a parent who cannot help themselves but reproduce their traumas for their mm-hmm. child, where it's kind of like now you have a common experience that mm-hmm. you share. Um, that keep you together. I mean, it's a toxic form of attachment and mm-hmm. binding. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Actually, there's this amazing book called Ingratitude by Erin Nin, And it's really, it's about how the <laughs> ungrateful daughter, mm. Asian American daughter, is reproduced constantly um, in literature, culture, and et cetera. Mm-hmm. And what that does is it binds the daughter to the family. It binds the daughter to the culture, to Mm. the origin. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so what does it mean then? Because there's another scholar who writes this book, Acts of Betrayal. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm forgetting her name. <laughs> but in that book, she talks about how Asian American women are oftentimes depicted as betraying their race mm-hmm. um, whenever they, you know, marry outside the race or pursue a non-lucrative career. Mm-hmm. Leslie Bow, that's the author. And we talked about in an earlier episode about how difficult it is to chart a different path from your mother, from Mm -hmm. our mothers, Mm -hmm. without shaming them, without Mm -hmm. faulting them for the choices that they've made, um, or even feeling like you're better. Right. Or Or feeling shame that you have more opportunity Mm -hmm, than they did. mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I think I was doing to my mother exactly what bell hooks was kind of calling out right i was judging Mm. her without having compassion for her wounds and Mm. then in reproducing that judging myself and shaming myself Mm -hmm. and not having compassion for my own wounds and i think before we can even think about or even look to do that on a grander scale Mm -hmm. it's almost essential that we do that for ourselves first right as an Mm -hmm. internal practice and that's what mindfulness and meditation and these kinds of connection between our own healing and social justice movements Mm -hmm. have in common, right? It's that, as we said in our first episode, when you evolve, the world evolves with you. You know, Mm -hmm. when you heal yourself, you can help heal the world. Um, I still firmly believe that. Absolutely. And it actually goes back to what I mentioned earlier about the meaning of presence in Buddhist philosophy. Mm-hmm. The reason why there's only the present is because in that moment you lashed out at your mom, your mother's past was present, mm-hmm. right? And your future was present too, in terms of mm-hmm. reproducing the past mm-hmm. in that future trajectory. That's why mm-hmm. the past and present is always in the present moment. Mm-hmm. When we think about the nation, the emotional mm. landscape that I talk about in the history, it can feel very abstract and really big and all of this. Mm-hmm. But actually elements of that whole master narrative like exist in our very personal lives, mm-hmm. right? Like Absolutely. when in our second episode, when we talk about the white oppressor within. Right. Yeah. yeah. We're in a very precarious moment, I feel like. Mm. The precarity of what's around us in the world is is really felt internally, right? And I think another beautiful insight that Hooks offers is how she defines peace. Mm. And when we first introduced the law of attraction, I remember you asked me, you know, what are you attracting in your life? And I, I think I said, I am attracting a sense of peace mm-hmm. with my decisions, with my relationships, with whatever comes my way. Mm-hmm. And how she kind of interprets peace is not the absence of struggle or despair. Mm. Right? It's maintaining hope and understanding and acceptance in the face of those things. Mm-hmm. And it's recognizing that something is reborn out of that despair, just like the, you know, the bowl that breaks, right? It, mm-hmm. it gets bigger as you talked about in that mm-hmm. episode as well. It's not getting consumed by the fear that struggle or despair creates, but feeling hopeful you know, in in the face of it. And as we kind of dawn upon our upcoming election in, in just a short few days, that is what I am 
am holding on to is maintaining that sense of hope regardless. Mm-hmm. That's so important. And actually something that peace is something that doesn't make money. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make headlines. Mm-hmm. It's not something you can sell or buy. And this goes back to what I mean by the economy of healing. Yeah. Wow. That's so We on. don't have a structure. We don't have an investment in creating structures that cultivate peace, allow peace to happen. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so at least we can start on an individual level and mm-hmm. amongst our, within our communities, start to imagine what those structures would look like. I think this too is so resonant with the concept of abundance too, mm-hmm. right? Because as you said, there are no systems that really cultivate peace or honor peace because we live in a heavily capitalist society that is, you know, when I do well, that means you do poorly, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Or it's it's just one or the other. And peace is is not that at all, mm-hmm. right? It's 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 living in a love ethic, as we talk about, that kind of manifests the feelings of love, compassion, forgiveness for everyone, right? In all yeah. cases that does not judge one or the other. Mm -hmm. And that there's always room to grow and evolve, right? Like something that this conversation is coming up for me, right? In my deep commitment to nonviolence and compassion is to consider how am I in an interdependent relationship with people who disagree with me? Mm Mm-hmm who hold opposing views from me. Mm. Thich Nhat Hanh is always stressing like how, you know, the American left and right, how they really are in an interdependent relationship, like one mm. cannot exist without the other. And when you press on that a little bit, you can get into Thich Nhat Hanh's concept of interbeing, mm. where there's really not such a hard line between me and my opponent. How do you get there? Mm. That's, mm. that's the question. How do you get there? How can you get there? What is the structure mm. that will nurture peace? You realize that the lesson is this, is that the other person is suffering mm. and you are suffering. That the suffering is what is shared. And both of you actually are invested in alleviating that suffering. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's so insightful. And I think... To do that, it requires practicing compassion and living in a love ethic, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have really enjoyed this conversation as I'm still, you know, processing the book that I just read, All About Love by Bell Hooks. And we highly recommend that you read it as well. The information is in our description. And so as we kind of wrap up, we would love to end with our weekly affirmations and especially to draw on Bell Hooks's wonderful insights on compassion and peace. So if you will take a deep breath with me. I maintain hope in the face of despair. When I practice forgiveness, 
I let go of shame, compassion, and forgiveness reconnect all of us. Thank you so much for that, Jamie. I feel like each affirmation was so heartfelt today, and I can't help but feel so much gratitude for the wisdom of Bell Hooks and the conversation she inspired for us. Totally. I agree. And so we hope you enjoyed our episode. Please continue to tune in and send in your thoughts and your questions, and we'll chat with you next time. Thank you for joining us on Are You There Universe, where we get to reimagine a new world together. We're so grateful to you, and we hope you can join us again next time to dive deeper into the intersections between social justice and spirituality. If you're curious about our other projects and extensions of this work, connect with us. We'd love to have you join our community on Instagram at areyouthere.universe. You can also find me, Sunny, at sunny underscore mystic, and find Jamie on her website, www.jamiewu.com.